Last Sunday, as we gathered round the Word of God, we gathered round Isaiah 43 in that moment where God was saying, forget the things of the past, or forget the former things, do not dwell in the past, see I'm doing a new thing, it is springing up, do you not perceive it? And we spoke about how God was changing the lens, how he was giving us, or he was dealing with the way that we see, changing the way that we see, moving us from just seeing to watching for what he was going to do. We were to move from wishful anticipation to watchful expectation, and that God was giving us a new lens through which to see in order, or to watch in order to see what it is that he was about to do. And in some senses, hopefully, we're going to begin to build on that thought a little bit today. And we're going to do so by looking at Ezekiel 37, a very well-known passage of Scripture. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Ezekiel 37? I'm going to read from verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I'll make breath enter you and you will come to life. I'll attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. This is quite a well-known passage of scripture, one that I'm sure you've heard many sermons on before. And Ezekiel sets the whole thing up by telling us that the hand of the Lord was on him and he brought me out by the Spirit and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. As we read that, a number of questions come to mind. And the first question that comes to mind is, is this a vision that Ezekiel is having or is this an experience? Is this a vision in the sense that he's in the spirit and he's in the spiritual places and he's seeing this or God is unfolding this in front of his mind's eye or even filling his vision with a picture of this? Or has he actually been lifted into an actual valley that is actually filled with bones? And the truth of the matter is, we don't really know. It could be either. If we read it literally, then we would probably lean into the latter that is an actual experience that he is having. It could be either God is more than capable about bringing about either. But the real truth of the matter is, it probably doesn't really matter that much because whatever we interpret it, the message is the same. And Ezekiel starts off by telling us that the hand of the Lord was on him. Now, that's a phrase that we read quite a bit in Scripture. And in fact, that's a phrase that we use quite a lot in churchy world, isn't it? 
where we talk about God's hand being on someone or the, the hand of the Lord is on that ministry or the hand of the Lord is on that thing or, or the hand of God's all over something. And it's a churchy phrase that we use. But what does it actually mean? And probably the best way to, to demonstrate its meaning is to illustrate it. And I'm going to borrow my good lady Susan for this. Susan, can I borrow you for this illustration? For those of you who don't know, Susan is my beautiful wife. She is my much better half. And she is probably roughly about half the size as well. But that's... So, this this phrase, the hand of the Lord was on me, has a number of great meanings. But if we actually demonstrate it by this act of physically putting a hand on someone. When I, when I put my hand on Susan, I check that she's all right with that. No, when I put my hand on Susan, the first thing that communicates is closeness. I have to be near Susan to be able to put my hand on her. My hand is not distinct from my body. So for my hand to be upon her means that I am in proximity to her. I am close to her. I am near to her. I am in her presence and she is in my presence. And as Ezekiel was talking about the hand of the Lord being upon him, he is communicating that in this moment he is sensing the closeness of God, the nearness of God, the proximity to God. He is in the presence of God. But equally, when I put my hand on Susan, when you put your hand on someone you can actually kind of like move the person. Like if someone was walking in front of you and you reached out and you put your hand on their shoulder, you would stop them dead in their tracks or you might actually use your hand to push them further on in their tracks. But the hand, <laughs> you know, has the ability to, you could say manipulate, but more, we'll lean into the more positive side of that, which is influence. And if, for example, Susan and I were walking down the street and I saw the shop that we were meant to be going into, I might put my hand around Susan to guide her into the shop that we're going to for her to spend all of my money. (laughs) So this concept of the hand of the Lord being on him is talking about leadership. Don't read too much into that from this metaphor. Um, But speaking about guidance and direction and influence, and I suppose even in the sense of not only does me having my hand on Susan um, bring leadership or influence through my closeness and my presence, but also it speaks about proximity to voice. If Susan and I are walking down Buchanan Street and I put my arm around her and say something to her, she will hear it, but the other people down Buchanan Street probably won't. So the point is that there's this closeness and proximity that doesn't just speak about presence, but also speaks about influence and also speaks about guidance and also speaks about direction. There's another aspect to this, and I just want to use this also to cover another couple of things and then come back into the metaphor in the passage. But the reason that I picked Susan to illustrate this with is because Susan is my most favorite person on the face of the earth. And I can, and I know the feeling's mutual, and (laughs) I can put my hand on Susan because of my relationship to her. She feels safe in my touch and in my expression because of the relationship that we possess. And I know that I am safe to express that and she's safe to receive that because of our relationship. Now, let's come back into the metaphor in a moment, but let's also just understand a little bit that because I know Susan, I know that she's okay with that level of touch. And in church world, we can be very tactile people, can't we? 
And some of us like to touch, and that's okay, because some of us like to touch, but some of us don't like to be touched. And so we sometimes just need to have a wee think about the levels of touch that we exercise. But equally, let me say, I'm able to express touch to Susan because she's my wife, but what I'm not communicating there is that I have the right to touch Susan. There is also, can be this mindset in church world, particularly with husbands and spiritual heads and wives, that our wives are somehow our property, they are not our property, that we have the right to touch, or that we have the right to command and order, or that they have to serve and facilitate. I don't have, Susan is not my property, Susan is my soulmate, she's my running mate, she is my partner. And so, although there is that aspect in which I know I can touch Susan because she's my wife. I'm not expressing that I have the right to do that. But what I'm expressing is because of my relationship, I know what is safe and I know what is not. I know what is okay and I know what is not. And, and the point bringing it back into this metaphor is that there is this ability to express this touch because of this relationship that we have. And without going too far, I would touch Susan in a way that I would never touch anybody else in the whole world, right? But... Don't go too far. But the point with that is that that's because we exist in this very unique, very favored relationship. And as Ezekiel talks about the hand of God being on him, he's talking about the depths of relationship that he's experiencing there. He's talking about being in intimacy with God. He's talking about favor and experiencing favor. And all of that is communicated in this phrase, the hand of the Lord was on me. Thank you. Thank you for that. So Ezekiel is describing here that he's experiencing the closeness of God, the proximity of God, the presence of God, the leadership of God, the guidance, the influence both by his presence and with his voice. And we see that in the passage because he's led to and fro among the bones and he starts a conversation with God and God speaks to him and he speaks to God and he's speaking about the favor of God being on his life. Now, all of these things can actually be summarized in one word. What we're seeing here is the action of God. This is the activity of God. This is the action of God within a life. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he comes in proximity and begins to reveal his nearness and his closeness. He brings us into an intimate relationship where he reveals his favor and he begins to guide and lead us with his presence, with his voice, and with his hand. We see here the action of God. However, Ezekiel takes it one step further and he says, not only was the hand of the Lord on me, but he also brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. And so here we don't just see the action of God, but here we also see the movement and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And to allow me to be a little bit preachy here, we're going to lean into poetic words. All of the words are going to end in I-O-N, just a heads up. So we're going to lean into an old-fashioned word that we used to use a lot in church that we don't use so much now, but a word that we used to use to refer to the movement and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here we don't just see the action of God, but here we also see the unction of God. And the word unction is a word we used to use to describe the Holy Spirit's ministry. And it's, the word unction means anointing, it means empowering, but it also means movement. There's something passionate and powerful about the word unction. Just even when you say it, it kind of conveys that, doesn't it? It's about fervor. It's about passion. It's about power. And in this passage, in this moment, we see the action and we see the unction of God presented together because you never see the action of God without the unction of God. You never see the activity of God without seeing His Spirit at work. 
And we see that not just here, but we see it throughout the scripture. Can I come down for a walk? I get a bit bored up there. So we see it, when you come back to, to Genesis, right at the very beginning of time, we've got this moment in which God creates the heavens and the earth and he begins to separate the sea and the land and he begins to separate the night and the day and uh, at night and the, and the light and he puts the sun and the moon and the stars and then he creates the... Maybe won't stand there. He creates the, the, the animals to crawl on the land. He creates the birds to, to fly in the sky and, and the fish to swim in the sea. And at every stage of creation, he makes an announcement. It is good. There is this announcement and proclamation of favor. What we see here then is the hand of God at work in the world. The activity of God. And every stage that was created was created within the atmosphere where the scripture says the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And the word hover there, it means to brood. And in the Hebrew, it's kind of used to paint this picture of a hen sitting on her eggs to incubate them to life. It's this concept of them being completely enveloped and covered to be incubated to life. And it's almost as though every stage of creation was brought into being within this incubation of the Holy Spirit. He was superintending everything that happened. But what we see then is we've got the action of God linked to the unction of God. And then you come into Luke chapter 1 and you come to the beginning of the New Testament and the angel Gabriel visits Mary and the first words out of the angel Gabriel's mouth is, Greetings you who are highly favoured. There's an announcement of the favor of God. And then with that comes the announcement of the activity of God. Here's what God's going to do. You're going to have a child and he's going to be the son of God and he's going to be the savior of the entire world. And here's how this is going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. And the word that's used for overshadow has the same meaning as it does to describe brooding in Genesis chapter 1. So here we've got the activity of God, the action of God, and the unction of God. And then we fast forward to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and we're told that Jesus came to reveal the action of God and the activity of God. He came to release the kingdom and the kingdom of God forcefully advanced from the days of John the Baptist until now. And as he gets into the waters at the river Jordan and comes up out of the water, the heavens are opened and there is this announcement, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. There is this announcement of favor. And then the Spirit descends upon him and lights upon him. The meaning of the word light is the same as the meaning overshadow. It's the same as the, the word that's used in Genesis 1 to describe the brooding of the Spirit. So what we've got is the action of God and the unction of God. And then we come to Acts chapter 2 and we've got a group of guys in this upper room and a group of women alongside them and they're there because they are to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. They are to advance the kingdom. They are to begin to bring the action of God to the world of God and they wait and as they wait, who comes but the Spirit comes and the church is born and the kingdom begins to advance. Throughout the scripture we see this link between the action of God and the unction of God, you never see the action of God without the unction of God. You never see the activity of God without the Spirit of God. And you know, we are saved for a purpose. 
When we give our lives to Christ, we are saved for a purpose. God has a purpose for each and every one of our lives. And we use this even when we preach the gospel and we tell people, God's got a purpose for your life. You need to surrender to Jesus to experience that. And when we do, God gets to work in our lives. The action of God becomes a reality in each and every one of our lives. He begins to presence himself. He begins to come in proximity. He begins to draw us into intimacy. He begins to guide us and lead us. He begins to influence the world round about us. He begins to unfold his favor in our lives. And as if that wasn't good enough, he gives us the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit to help us on the journey, to testify about Jesus to us, to guide us into all things and to lead us into all righteousness. And all of that preaches really, really well. And we like to talk about the action of God and the unction of God. And in Pentecostal circles, we like to talk about the action and the unction of God because we're looking for another word that ends in I-O-N, and that's the manifestation of God. But here's the big truth. The action and the unction of God does not equal manifestation. The end result of surrendering to the action and the unction of God should not be seeking manifestation. The end result to the action and the unction of God is that we become positioned by him. When we surrender, when we yield to his action, when we yield to his ministry and his activity in our lives, God begins to position us for influence. We see that spelled out in this opening verse. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the Spirit and he set me down in the valley. The result, the conclusion of the surrender to the action and the unction of God was that Ezekiel was positioned. He was positioned for influence. In fact, he was positioned for revival. Because what he saw was dead coming back to life. To revive something is to take something that's dying or dead and bring it back to life again. He was positioned for revival. And before he could be positioned or before he could begin to influence the surroundings around about him, God had to do some deeper work. And one of the things that we often understand about God is we get the action of God, we get the unction of God, but, but it's almost as though the purpose of God and the pursuit of his purpose becomes this abstract reality that is distinct from us. It's something that we need to step into. It's something that happens when the stars come into alignment and there's this moment, this magical moment when we step into calling and we step into purpose. And many times people will say, when is God going to begin to use me? When is God going to release me into ministry? When is he going to position me to be where I'm meant to be in the news flash is if you surrender to the action and the unction of God then you are already positioned exactly where you need to be to make a difference in the world around you amen if we yield to him we surrender to him it's not something magical that happens further down the line but the God that sees the beginning from the end and all the bits in between who's at work in yesterday today and tomorrow has already positioned us exactly where we're meant to be to make a difference in the surroundings round about us but there is a key component that we see here with Ezekiel that God uses to release him as an agent of change within his environment and the first thing that God does is that God begins to deal with his vision. It says there in verse 2, he led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. God's action and unction is seen here where he is leading Ezekiel in and out the bones 
And the result of that is that Ezekiel gets a vision. He sees what's going on. He says, I saw something. I saw a great many bones, bones that were dry. He sees the quantity of bones and he sees the quality of the bones. And as he sees this, as he gets this vision and this perspective, he begins to build an understanding of the story of the valley and of the culture of the valley. What he sees is not a set of bones, it's not a skeleton lying there, but he sees a great many bones. The quantity of bones begins to build an understanding within him of the story of this valley. Our vision impacts our understanding and our understanding impacts our vision. And as he sees this great many quantity of bones that are lying there, he begins to understand that either this valley is an ancient burial ground or it's a place of conflict. And if it's an ancient burial ground, then the burying bit clearly hasn't happened very well. But equally then we lean in when we read through the passage and see that these bones come together and stand as an army, then we lean more into the understanding that this has been a place of conflict. In biblical times, valleys were often the place where battles took place. One army would assemble on one hill, the other army on the other hill, and they'd march into the valley to fight one another. We see it in the story of David and Goliath. The Israelites took one hill, the Philistines took the other, they marched into the valley Goliath came forward and shouted at them, and the Israelites ran shouting for their mammies. But the point is that the valley was the place of conflict. So as Ezekiel sees these bones strewn all across, the quantity of them strewn all across this valley, he begins to understand the story of the valley. This has been a place of wounding. This has been a place of conflict. This has been a place of hurt. This has been a place of pain. This has been a place of injury, of hate, of anger, of tension, of strife. But not only did he understand the story of the valley, but as he looked at the quality of the bones, he also began to understand the culture of the valley. Because these weren't corpses lying there. It wasn't bodies that were lying there. It was bones that were lying there. And these bones were dry. If you have a squeamish disposition, close your ears for a few seconds. There was no muscle, there was no skin, there was no flesh on these bones. The flesh, the bone on the bones had deteriorated, it has rotted away. The birds of the air had come down and eaten it. These bones weren't kind of still warm, they weren't even slightly damp. They were dry. They weren't just dead, they were very dead. Which means that the culture of this valley was clear. The culture of this valley was death and death had reigned in this valley for some significant time. So from his vision, he builds an understanding because understanding shapes vision and vision shapes understanding. He understands the story of the valley and he understands the culture of the valley, but God begins to interact with Ezekiel's vision. Let's look at verse four. It says, then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I'll make breath enter you and you will come to life. I'll attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. God says to Ezekiel, here's what you see, but here's what I want you to see. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put flesh on these bones. I'm going to cause these bones to come together. I'm going to cause these bones to begin to rise up and stand up. God begins to give Ezekiel a vision of what he's about to do. He's about to change the story of this valley. He's about to change the culture 
culture of this valley. This valley is not going to be known anymore. The story of this valley is not going to be that it was the place of wounding and strife and injury and pain and death. But now the story of this valley is going to be that it's the place that God moved and the supernatural took place and the dead came back to life. He's about to change the story of the valley and he's about to change the culture of the valley. This Valley's no longer going to be ruled by a culture of death, but it's going to be ruled by a culture of life. Death won't be there anymore. Those bones aren't going to be there anymore. They're going to stand up as an army and they're going to march out of the valley. The whole culture is about to be transformed. But before he could change the story of the valley and before he could change the culture of the valley, he had to change Ezekiel's lens. He says, this is what you see right now this quantity of bones that are very dry. But in order for you to see what I'm about to do and in order for you to be part of what I'm about to do, I need to change your lens. And he gives him a lens through which to begin to see what he is about to do. And it strikes me as interesting that Ezekiel is led to and fro among the bones to see the quantity of the bones and the quality of the bones because you think, why was that really necessary? Surely you could have just brought him into this valley, sat, sat him down and went, watch this. This is what I'm about to do and do it. Because the outcome would have been the same. But he takes time to lead them to and fro among the bones, to see the bones and to understand the quantity, the quality of the bones that they're dry, to get this story, to get this understanding, to get this, this picture of this culture. And you think, why did he do that? And the reason is, I think, because sometimes God has to confront us with what is before he can show us what will be. Sometimes God has to confront us with the reality of our surroundings in order for us to recognize the need for change. Sometimes God has to challenge us with the vision that we have before he can change the lens to show us what needs to be. And I kind of wonder a little bit, Glasgow, if this is a bit of the journey that we've been on up until now, where God has been perhaps over this recent period of time bringing us to the place of understanding the reality of who we are and where we're at in order to show us what will be, to confront us with the reality of our surroundings in order for us to realize the need for this new lens to step into what is to come. And you know, this new lens moment is quite important and is quite significant. And the new lens doesn't just reframe what is to happen, but also reframes what has happened. If we recognize that the action and the unction of God positioned Ezekiel in this place to receive this new lens, to be part of what God was doing, then what we recognize then is that in this moment when the new lens comes, it's not a case of, well, now we see what's going to come, so everything else was just rubbish and just a waste of time. Absolutely not. This new lens not only reframes what is ahead of us, but also helps us to frame what has been behind us. Because the journey up until this point has involved the action and the unction of God. We're about to step into a place where we're getting given a new lens for what is ahead and to see what is to come and to step fully into what God's going to do. And we can be guilty at times of looking into that and then making the decision, well, everything up until now was just a waste of time. Everything up until now doesn't count anymore because now we've got the new, the new thing that is ahead of us. But what we have to realize is that over the past weeks, years, months, and decades, the action and the unction of God has been at work within Glasgow Elam and the lives of Glasgow Elam to bring us to this place where we are ready to receive this lens for what is to come. Amen. 
But as we see that as a church, we see that as individuals too. We recognize that God has been at work until this point, that this new lens is coming in place. And if we are recognizing that a new lens is coming, then what that means is that God is about to change our story and God's about to change our culture. And I find that quite healing because I don't know about you, but over the past wee bit, the past year has been quite sore. My own journey over 2023 has been one of pain. It's been quite difficult at times. It's been good times, but there's been some really difficult times. And my own journey within the journey of Glasgow Elam has been marked with a bit of pain over the last wee bit. And some of that is stuff that has happened. And some of that, to be truthful, is just God dealing with the rough edges that I have, which are quite many. You may have picked up on that. And I'm dealing with the type of person that I am and the type of leader that I am. And that's been really sore and it's been really painful. But when we come to that place where he's revealing to us that he's putting the new lens in place, then that teaches us that the journey up until now has not been wasted time. That pain and that difficulty has not been in vain. It's not been futile. That's action and the unction of God has been at work in this moment. And he's about to change our story, which means that the story up until this point is not going to be our forever narrative. He's going to change our story and he's going to transform the culture that we carry and the culture that we function within, both as a church and and as individuals. And this new lens then becomes really important because it frames the past properly, but it also helps us to understand the present and it helps us to position for the future. And the key moment that Ezekiel received this lens, the key that unlocked that for him was when he prayed an important prayer in verse 3. God speaks to him and says, Son of man, can these bones live? And he said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. He prays this prayer in verse 3 and the new lens comes in verse 4. The lens that God gives him to view what's about to happen. And it's interesting that the first thing that God does is he says to him, Son of man, can these bones live? He asks him a question. He says, Ezekiel, I know what you see but I want to interact with what you're thinking. What are you thinking? Can these bones live? The question is to to understand what's in your thoughts, what's in your mind, what, what are you thinking? And Ezekiel sees death, but is asked about life. And he's like, I know what I see. I see death, I see bones, he doesn't see bodies. He sees that which is beyond reviving. He sees bones. He sees death. And he's like, if I was to answer that, then the answer would be no. They can't live. They're beyond life. The laws of nature says no. Our understanding up until now, from the beginning of humanity till now, is that bones do not come back to life. That's the rules. That's the way this has always worked. But God begins to ask this question because this changing of the lens is not just about changing the way that he sees. It's about changing the way that he thinks as well. It's about changing mindsets. It's about changing his thought processes. It's about changing the mindset of this is the way it's always been because with God... Anything is possible. And so what we're going to understand is that God, as God begins to change the lens, it's not just about the way that we see and the way that we look and the way that we watch, but actually it's about mindsets and it's about thought processes and it's about approaches to stuff. 
It's about challenging the way that things have always been and the culture that has been defined by that to say, actually, we need to bring some culture change and we need to begin to interact with thought processes and mindsets and approaches. And so he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, sovereign Lord, you alone know. It's almost like Ezekiel is saying here, I know what I see. I see bones that are dry. But here's what I know. I know that God is capable of absolutely anything. And he says, sovereign Lord. He says, I know that you're in charge here. I know that you're sovereign over this. I know that you're capable of absolutely anything. So sovereign Lord, you alone know. What Ezekiel prays here is something really profound. It is the prayer that unlocks the new lens. He says, God, I know what I see, but let me see what you know. I know what I see, but he obviously knows that God is greater and more powerful and capable of anything. Otherwise, he would have just said, son of man, can these bones live? God, no, they can't. But he doesn't. He says, actually, what I know is that you are sovereign in this situation. You are greater and you are bigger and you are stronger. So he says, Lord, I know what I see, but let me see what you know. I think the most powerful and at the same time most dangerous prayer that we can pray as a church in 2024 is, Lord, we know what we see. When we look around right now, we know what we see. We know our shape, we know our size, we know our structure, we know our resources. When we look round about, we know the community that we're in, the culture we're in, we know the environment and the climate that we're working in right now and, and what's going on within our nation and what's going on within our world and the worries and the stresses and the strains. We know what we see, but actually we choose to lift our eyes beyond that and we're asking you for a brand new lens. We're asking to see what you know. We're asking to see what it is that you know, what is on your heart, what is on your mind. And this is when the new lens comes because Ezekiel is told, prophesy, son of man. To prophesy is to announce the heart of God, the mind of God, the knowledge of God, the intentions of God, the activity of God. This is the key for the new lens. The most dangerous prayer that we can pray as individuals in 2024 is, Lord, I know what I see. I know what's going on in my heart. I know what's going on in my house. I know what's going on in my family. I know what's going on in my friendship circles. I know what's going on in the world around about me. I know what's going on in the, in the workplace. I know what's going on in the environment that directly surrounds me. But Lord, I choose to lift my eyes beyond that and say, Lord, I know what I see, but let me see what you know. Let me see what you know. Give me the new lens to see what it is that you know you're about to do, what you know is about to unfold in this world. Ezekiel prays this prayer. And God answers by giving him this new lens and he outlines in verse four to six fully exactly what it is he's gonna do. And God clearly has a vision for this valley. And what strikes me is that God doesn't actually need Ezekiel to accomplish this vision. As we said, God could have just brought him into the valley, sat him down and said, watch this, pal. And what would have been written would have been equally as impressive. But God chooses to involve Ezekiel 
in this vision. He's commanded to prophesy. He's commanded to take action in the environment that he is in. And here we almost come full circle again. The action and the unction of God brings Ezekiel to this place of receiving this new lens to see what it is that God's about to do and to be part of what it is that God's about to do, to step into what God's about to do. And then as a result of that, his vision, his new lens compels him to action, which is showing that this new lens is not just about the way that we see and it's not just about the way that we think, but it also has to shape the way that we act has to shape our behavior. God is coming and saying to us, those lenses that we have over our souls that have been shaped by the stuff that we've been through, they've been shaped by the way that we've been raised, they've been shaped by the institutions that we've been in and the mindsets that we've had and the way that we've learned and the way that we've been taught. And he's like, it's time for that to come away and it's time for a new lens. And it's not just about seeing differently and thinking differently, it's about shaping the very way that we live and the very way that we function. And the same is the case for us as a church. Where in fact God is saying this isn't just about thinking differently and it isn't just about seeing differently, but actually this is about shaping us. The way that we function. The way that we are as a people. The way that we minister. The way that we move. What we apply our hand to. What we apply our resources to. And we begin to see, and he, he's told to, to prophesy. And, and it says there that he prophesied as he was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise. His new lens compelled him to action. And it says, as he stepped out in obedience to do what God had asked him to do, as he stepped out in obedience to act, God stepped in and began to act. It's interesting that Ezekiel didn't wait until the bones started to move and then say, oh yeah, I had a word about that. Ever had those folks? That once God's done something afterwards, that's when they go, oh, I had a word about that. God gave me a picture about that. And we probably did. But Ezekiel didn't wait until after the fact to act. He stepped out in obedience and as he did, God stepped in. And it says that there came this rattling as the bones come together and we have in our mind's eye this picture of all these skeletons sitting in a row on the floor and they rise up and stand and take their place but I'm not quite sure that that's the way it would have been without being too gory if this was conflict then you've got to believe that as folks were being attacked and limbs would have went all over the place and as the bones deteriorated and the flesh rotted away and birds came and ate the things would have been picked up and dropped and as winds came and floods came into valleys and all that stuff there would have been movement amongst those bones and I almost have this picture of as God begins to move that suddenly bones start flying across the valley to come together to take their place which means that what he would have seen would have been chaotic it would have been uncomfortable it would have been unsettling it would have been scary but God was in the midst of the chaos and you know, as we get this new lens and God is calling us to step up with this new lens, it has to shape the way that we see and look and watch and it has to shape the way that we think and it has to shape the way that we act. But we would be foolish to think that as soon as we get this new lens, everything's going to click into place and it's all going to be rosy. The truth of the matter is that in this journey going forward, there will be times that will be unsettling and there will be times that will be uncomfortable and there will be things that we will not be quite be sure of and there will be times that will be chaotic. But as long as we can see the hand of God at work, we're okay. God moves, it isn't always as perfect as we think it is. 
It can be unsettling and it can be chaotic. But as he stepped out in obedience, these bones came and they stood, but the scripture says there was no breath in them. There was structure, but there was no breath. And you know, as we step out in obedience, our obedience to his call and our actions shape the structures that God uses to accomplish his purpose. But we've got to be careful not to become obsessed with structure because God doesn't call us for structures. God calls us to culture. He's calling us to fruitfulness. A structure that is empty is of no use to him at all. And so he says to him, prophesy to the breath, son of man. And the breath came and filled in the word breath here. It's the ruah, it's linked to the spirit of God. And we see a structure that required the spirit. And as we get this new lens and we step out in obedience to that, our obedience will create structures, but if the structure is devoid of the spirit, it's empty and useless, we must lean into the spirit of God. We must make room for his breath. And it's amazing to see that in this moment, we've got the unction of God again. He's compelled with this new lens to step into action, but he has to lean in to the unction of God. And we begin to see this full cycle where the action and the unction of God brings him to this place where God deals with his vision and gives him a new lens. And that new lens compels him to act and to lean in for the unction of God. And what we see then is that the most important part in that process is this position of vision. The way that we position ourselves in the envisioning process is so important. It's a critical place. And God has brought us to this place where as a people, as individuals, and as a church, he seeks to give us the new lens for what is ahead. But that's not just about the way that we look and see and watch. It's also about our mindsets. It's about our thought processes. And it's about our action. He calls us to this place and not just to change the way that we see, not just even challenging our mindsets, which I think he's begun to do already. But he also calls us to step up. To allow what we sense that he is saying to shape what we do to shape the way that we do it, but to be cautious not to become obsessed with structures, but to make sure that everything we build carries his breath, for that's when we see life. 